The SS Dorchester, a civilian liner converted for military service, left New York on January 23, 1943, en route to Greenland, carrying approximately 900 personnel and crew. It was part of a convoy of three ships escorted by Coast Guard cutters Tampa, Escanaba, and Comanche. During the early morning hours of February 3rd, off Newfoundland in the North Atlantic, the vessel was torpedoed by the German submarine U-223. Chaplains George Fox, Alexander Good, Clark Poling, and John Washington helped the men board lifeboats and gave up their own life jackets when the supply ran out. The chaplains joined arms, said prayers, and sang hymns as they went down with the ship. Hello, welcome to a special edition of Scuttlebutt, Marine Corps Association podcast. I'm Nick, I'm here with Vic. Hey. And William. Hello. And this is the first episode of our celebration of the Four Chaplains Day, which is the fir- which is the third day of February. Yep. And we're going to spend the entire month kind of just doing a, our first organized Scuttlebutt special yep. uh, for Chaplains Month. Four episodes. Four episodes, four chaplains through the month of February, yeah. And if you find a better source on the podcast network for chaplain stuff than what we're about to provide you, um, kudos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's that's part of the, uh, the impetus behind doing – I mean, I think the original idea was we would just do an episode mm-hmm. uh, because, I mean, having been a battalion XO, the role and duties of the chaplain – are, are not as well known as they should be. Um, and, you know, uh, for service members, either current or veteran, you know, you know the chaplain's there. You kind of have an idea what he does. But there's nothing explicit, and there's not a lot of, uh, you know, everybody knows what an infantryman does. Everybody knows what an Amtrak or pilot, what the CO does, what the sergeant major does, ops chief, et cetera, et cetera. What the chaplain actually does, other than just providing religious services, isn't very well known, and because of that, is extremely underutilized at within the staff. I mean, the, the chaplain is key staff to the commander, and except with the exception of those people who have been commanders and have had chaplains on their team, probably aren't really fully aware of what a chaplain does. And so the idea was, hey, let's do an episode and feature a chaplain, talk to a chaplain, see what's going on. And then, yeah, we we learned about the Four Chaplains Day, February 3rd, and then just started to do a little bit more research and learning more about it. And then it's like, hey, let's talk more and more and find all these different avenues of chaplaincy, of who the chaplains are and what, what it is they do. So this was a really fun um series for me and i'm really glad that we're going to be doing it yeah so like like you said nick if you can find something else that's going to be uh this detailed on what a chaplain does like please email us and let us know uh so maybe we can uh we can learn something uh beyond what we've already learned you know, through through the series so yeah and i feel like once all the episodes are out just as a package like if you need to know anything about chaplains like just even in this first episode with uh bill kemmer uh i learned so much yeah, um, because he was a chaplain's uh, assistant, um, and that was in the army. Yeah, yeah, in the army, and that was something that I had no idea about. Yeah, yeah, retired and master sergeant. Yeah, um, yeah. So those for those who have served or have been around the chaplains, um, 
you probably are aware of this, but for those who maybe haven't or aren't in in the serve hadn't served, um, you have your chaplain and you know, by law, is not allowed to carry a weapon. This is an oversimplification of what a religious assistant or an RP for the Navy side does, but they're not allowed to carry weapons. They're non-combatants. Um, and so with all of those rules, there's somebody that has to be able to essentially protect mm-hmm. the chaplain. And so that's usually an enlisted service member uh, who will do all of the stuff that the chaplain really can't do like live fire training ranges go to the rifle range get qualified with a service weapon you know do uh, all of the field work basically be a service member and um for the chaplain and to do things that the chaplain is by law not allowed to do plus a lot of the admin processing and all of that good stuff yeah, and uh, Bill Kemmer also works. Uh, he's the director of the Four Chaplains Foundation. Yeah, uh, out of Philly. Yeah, we talked to him uh, a lot about. He's had a really interesting journey. But yeah, he retired as a mass sergeant, was a guardsman, an active duty guard, um, and yeah, and so um, got this opportunity to uh, be the director of the Four Chaplains Foundation, like you said, in Philadelphia, and it's it's where the Four Chaplains Memorial Chapel is. And they uh, hold services. It's non-denominational. They hold services. You just have to put in a request and obviously be respectful of the chapel itself. But, yeah, so check it out. Um, You can Google it. Uh, Yeah, it's the uh, Four Chaplains Memorial Foundation, which is available at www.fourchaplains.org. So if you want any more information or want to figure out ways to contribute or help, uh, go ahead and check it out. Yeah, but absolutely uh, wonderful story, wonderful foundation that we'll dive into Obviously, each week, and for our lineup, uh, obviously this week we've got uh, Bill Kamer. Uh, next week we've got Rear Admiral Alan T. Baker, who was the 16th uh, chaplain of the Marine Corps, uh, and he has a book called Foundations of Chaplaincy. He's also um, co-founder of a strategic foundations chaplaincy, uh, and we'll talk obviously more about that next week. And then we've got... Um, Retired Colonel James Driscoll, who uh, is the um, essentially the director of the military chaplaincy studies at Wesley Theological Seminary in D.C. And then we finish out with Cap- Chaplain Captain Rabbi Mendy Stern, um, who is uh, Arlington Cemetery, the head of Arlington Cemetery uh, Jewish Services and all of the National Capital Region. So really great guest list. It's going to be a really great series. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I enjoyed being a part of it and just learning a ton about what chaplains do. All right, so we're going to be bringing that to you throughout the month as well as a couple other little goodies. Uh, Keep your eye out for that. And uh, without any further ado, here's Past Vic talking to uh, Bill Kemmer. Ayo! Well, hello, everyone. It's Vic. I'm here uh, with the executive director of the Four Chaplains Foundation, uh, retired Mass Sergeant Bill Kamer. Sir, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, I appreciate you having us on. Thanks. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. This is such an honor. Um, you know, uh, embarrassingly, I was not familiar with the Four Chaplains and their story. And that was sort of the impetus behind this podcast series that we're going to be running. 
um, because it is just such a remarkable story of bravery and sacrifice. Um, but before we really get into who the four chaplains were and, and what your foundation is doing, um, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Um, you know, be as brief or as, uh, as long-winded as you want. Um, I see um, through your, your time that you've served overseas, um, you've been uh, on the all-Army track and field team, uh, you've trained enlisted and officers, both active duty and and in the guard. So, sir, if you in mind, if you mind just telling us a little bit of your journey in the Army and then how you came to be uh, the executive director of the foundation. Yeah, it's kind of been a, uh, it wasn't a planned uh, career move, but, and even, even the military, I grew up in a, a family, my dad was a World War II vet, so he followed Patton into um, uh, Europe. He went through the Battle of the Bulge. So I grew up in this family that, you know, I had this father that served in World War II, and I had two brothers served in Vietnam, and yet I'm in high school in the 70s, and probably, it was probably a low point for the military. It wasn't a real great calling joining the Army, so I went off to college and finished my degree and started teaching, and then I actually joined fairly late. So at 30, I just said, you know what, I'm in good shape. I ran college track, and I do want to serve my country. So as my dad would say, I did everything backwards. I went and paid for my school, <laughs> paid back RTC scholarship because, you know, I had long hair and wanted to run track. And then I just, I'm going to go enlist and go to Europe. And I picked a career field. I want to work in the chaplain corps. And really it came down to, this is way before the internet. So you had to go and watch these little videos. And um, I, I toyed with the idea of going in as going to seminary. And when I chose not to do that, I wanted to see if I could work with chaplains. And they had this career field called chaplain assistant. And, and the reason I chose it was really two things. One, I had my master's degree and the chaplains all have their master's in divinity. So I figured educational wise, we'd be a good match. And my background was edu in education. So I thought I'd be able to help them with young soldiers. And then the other thing is I just felt you know, even if you weren't a religious person, it's just bad karma to mess with the chaplain. So I figured <laughs> if I join the military and hang out with the chaplain, most likely people aren't going to mess with me. And and that was really true. So I spent four years active duty, no plans of staying in. I was going back to Iowa and um, teach school. And lo and behold, some sergeant major grabbed me before I got on the plane. And I know so little about how the military works at this point that I didn't realize he was the recruiting retention sergeant major for the national guard i just thought he was a nice sergeant major that you know, was chatting me up well he was smart enough to hook me up with the uh uh a cab unit in iowa he says you're going to teach school i'll tell you what i'm gonna put you on full-time orders till school starts go there see if you like it and then see if you stay in the guard so that little conversation end up the army got another uh 26 years out of me so i taught school in iowa I stayed in the guard. I was chapel assistant that whole time. And then we moved to Oregon. I remained in the um, in the guard. I taught school and then I switched um, because you have gaps in promotion in the guard. You know, there's you don't necessarily like the active duty. You kind of roll through your promotions. Well, in the guard, for instance, the chapel assistant in a state will end at as an E8 and the active duty. That's going to be an E9 or sergeant major position. Um, so I went and I taught, I went over and taught in the, um, in the um, academy. So I taught ROTC, I taught officer candidate school. And so that brought a different perspective 
of um, how I looked at the military, how we train officers and enlisted. So I kind of combined my educational background through my whole career. I thought it was a good match. Um, it allowed me to coach, um, continue to coach on the civilian side. And I also coached marathons, um, marathon teams in the guard, the biathlon team in the guard. And so to me, it was, I don't know, it was, it was, it was a nice, you know, partnership, me and the guard and, and, and me teaching school. So, and then the funny thing is after 20 years of being not on active duty, my last five years, I got asked to go to the guard bureau and go back on active duty and serve at the senior level with, um, at that time it was, um, chaplain, um, Brigadier General Brandt was the chief of chaplains for the national guard. So we made up what we call a unit ministry team. I was the senior NCO. Um, I was an E eight filling an E nine position. So as I had explained to my counterparts, when they tell me there's one army and they go, what'd you do wrong? Master Sergeant Cameron, why are you E eight? So I said, well, there's three armies, <laughs> guard reserve and active duty. And on the guard side, you know, this happens to be an E eight billet filling a Sergeant major position, but it was a great, it, it basically, that's what got me to the, um, to the chapel because I retired in DC after that stint. And during that time on the East coast, I went to an event at the Ford chaplains here in Philadelphia. And we were actually honoring one of the chief of chaplains chaplain. Uh, at that time, um, he had chaplain Rutherford and then he was, um, he was followed by um, Chaplain Hurley, um, the, the priest. He was a two-star general, and, and they were honoring him at his event. So I went to support that event, and lo and behold, I realized it was a foundation. And I actually just went up for an interview to be on their board, and they asked if you wanted to be a director. So I retired on October in 2018, October 29th, and November 1st, I was starting as the, the director here at the chapel. And, and for me, it made sense. Um, they needed somebody that understood the army and the chaplain corps. For me, it's been an educational experience because I knew nothing about running a nonprofit. I probably still know less than, you know, majority <laughs> of people, but I, I still have a passion to serve chaplains and serve veterans. So we'll figure that part out. Um, but that's what brought me um, to Philadelphia. So, so my career kind of always been in education, middle school, high school, teaching in the army. Alongside that, I served for 30 years. Um, as a chaplain assistant in the in the guard and active duty. Oh, that's an uh, that's an amazing path. Yeah, I actually I retired in 2018 too. So uh, you were yeah. in about three months longer than I was, but you did a lot more time, obviously. Um, speaking of that time, what were some of your uh, more memorable tours? I'm looking here, uh, your overseas tours. You were in Germany at an extremely formidable time in world history. Um, you mind talking about uh, those uh, those moments? You know, one of the reasons I actually, when I went to, into the recruiting office, I said, well, I wanted to go on one more kind of adventure and I did want to serve. My dad was at that time in his seventies probably. And my thought was if I could get over to Germany, maybe my folks would come over, you know, my dad would be able to walk through some of the areas that he served in. Unfortunately, my dad never really traveled and even me joining the army and going to Germany didn't coax him over there. But I, I enjoyed it. So I spent four years um, in a town called Zweibrücken, which was just um, uh, north of the French border. And at that time, the largest community of uh, United States citizens outside the United States was Kaiserslautern, Germany. There was 50,000 Americans living in Kaiserslautern, and that was nearby me. So the experience there was amazing. Um, you know, I traveled all over Europe. The chaplain and I, we 
We traveled over 40,000 miles um, throughout wow. all of Germany. And then I was able to go into other countries. We took a lot of soldiers on, um, we call them spiritual fitness retreats. We would take them to um, Paris. We'd take them to Luxembourg. Um, we took them to Spain. So we did a lot of that. So I think, well, one, it kind of spoiled me. I realized there was two armies. I was in the one, the support side. And then I'd go up to Grafenbeer and I realized this tip of the spear army was different than mine. Because I couldn't figure out why these young guys, I'd meet them and they, they never went anywhere. And then I realized, oh, because they're six months in the field. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then when they come out, they would take a block leave and they come back and go train six months. I said, oh, okay. I, I kind of dodged that part of the army when I was on active duty. Mine was more of that support element. So, uh, but for me, it was a good mix. Um, and what, one thing I did bring to the table, I realized early in my career that when young soldiers came to the chapel, they didn't necessarily have to meet with the chaplain. They were just trying to find somebody that wasn't yelling at them that day. So it, it, it helped that, you know, I, I was always a resource person, knew how to help with, you know, finances or education. So I made it kind of my mission to help young soldiers find out, you know, what's, what's this military career going to do for you? What's, you know, if you're going to stay in or if you're going to get out, what's your next step? And I think I took a lot of pride in helping young soldiers that, even when they got out, they either went on to a trade school, college, but they had a plan in place. They weren't just, you know, my enlistment ran out and I'm going home. You know, that's something I, I fought the whole time I was there. And um, I, so I was pretty proud of that. So, yeah, so I spent four years there in the Guard. Um, most of my time in the Guard was, you know, state training events. Um, but at that time, they still did some national events for the Chaplain Corps. We'd meet regionally. And then when I did go to the Guard Bureau, um, we went TDY. We didn't really deploy. We went TDY to Kuwait, Iraq, you know, places like that to visit with soldiers. So that was a great experience for me. So. Yeah, uh, that's really awesome. And then so as you were advising and this is such an interesting aspect of uh, the chaplain's assistant, because the assumption would be if someone's coming in your office, they're looking for spiritual guidance, but you were providing much more of a holistic experience for them. Had And you mentioned earlier about um thinking about going to seminary, did you ever did take any seminary classes or um, was it your yeah. education training more along what was helping you more? I had a chaplain once asked, why didn't, uh, you know, your your husband, you know, he has his master's degree. Why why didn't he pursue the seminary? And my wife, without batting an eye, says, well, I think my husband lacks a certain amount of empathy. <laughs> she says, <laughs> he, he's probably not giving anybody a hug you probably will give him three choices pick one and move out so i think he's in his right calling that's what that's what she said and she was probably right i you know i found that my calling and, and this is what i what i took away from my enlistment and when i took to when i when i taught officer candidates and then i then i trained chaplains later i said i don't care if you're the best chaplain in the world when you walk into the room you're still an officer and 90 percent of the force are enlisted and when you go to basic training, AIT, you know, you don't meet officers except at graduation, you know, and maybe they come out to the, the range once or twice and, you know, they're there. But your formative years are with NCOs. So I always tell chaplains to be effective. You know, you have to be able to um, reach out to all soldiers. Don't get pigeonholed in just your faith group. Make sure you reach out to all of them and you have to use your chaplain assistant because I'm the one that's in the motor pool. I'm the one going to the range. I'm the one going out training with them. 
So I'm going to know kind of the morale and, and what's going on in the unit. So I, my job was to steer people that needed to go to the chaplain to the chaplain and also set my chaplain up for success that, um, sir, here's, you know, here are soldiers and families that you need to reach out to. So I, I think that was the partnership that I liked. You know, I was kind of the, the eyes and ears for the enlisted side. And then even though he was the spiritual side, um, people didn't know, you don't necessarily always just run to the chaplain, especially if you're non-religious, you don't, you know, you may not just go there because you don't want to, you know, you may have some angst about that. So my job was to relieve that angst and set them up, you know, for success to meet the chaplain. That's that's great. That's that, this this is so wonderful. You know, I I served as a you know, platoon commander, company commander, I was a battalion XO, and to be quite honest, like I just didn't have the intellectual curiosity that I I looking back, I wish I had to find out more about what the chaplain's office does and the chaplain and we have called them the RPs. Right. Uh, uh for for our side but um that's amazing so it sounds so much like and i love that idea of the partnership because it sounds so much of like who i leaned heavily on as a platoon commander company commander or my senior enlisted my platoon sergeants um and they did much of the same way as like hey here's sort of the pulse of what's going on and so it sounds like that's what you were doing for your chaplains that's great and i learned really quick that the chaplain reports directly to the commander. I mean, he can walk in. I mean, I don't care if your chaplain's a captain and your commander is a colonel. They go one-on-one. -on -one. So as a young specialist, you know, and then a sergeant, I realized if the chaplain's not there, I'm speaking for the chaplain, and I can go to the commander. So I was able to cut through a lot of um, red tape. But what I, what I also told young lieutenants and captains is your chaplain can be a force multiplier if you use them properly. I mean, if you have a partnership with them, um, they can do a lot for your unit. But if you ignore them, you're probably missing a little bit of um, what they what they can do. So that was also my job to educate my NCOs and even the young officers around me how to use the chaplain. You know, you don't always want them there, but sometimes you do need them there. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, then, so in your time, then... Um did you were you aware of the four chaplains as you were uh, a young scrappy soldier or did you find out more about them later well in 1989 when i joined um uh, reader's digest puts out an article and it's on the four chaplains so i remember my mom giving it to me the day i joined um it's interesting because i went to fort monmouth that was where my um my initial training was and then chaplain brant who becomes the one star for the national guard we're both on the same installation at the same time. He's going through chaplain school and I'm going through the uh, chaplain assistant. We meet, you know, 25 years later and we end our careers together. Um, but I, I did know the story. And then when you go to the chaplain school, they um, all the rooms are named after each of the chaplains. And now if you ever go to um, uh, if you end up going to Fort Jackson um, and they have the chapel museum there, there's a huge. Um, a stained glass window with the four chaplains. So it's always been embedded in the chaplain corps. And the chaplain corps is the oldest corps in the military. It was formed before we even, you know, formed a country. So, I mean, we've been around a long time, you know, Washington won at chaplains. So the story has really resonated. And then under chaplain Hurley, when he came, became the chief, when I was there near the end, he made it a kind of his calling 
to reach out to chaplains, remind them about their calling as ministers to soldiers, you know, that that's why they're there. And he used the four chaplain story um, all the time when he talked. So that's really cool. Yeah. Well, so for those of us who are unaware, then would you mind um, telling us a little bit about the four chaplains and the USAT Dorchester? Sure. I'll give you the the, the the four minute version. So, you know, yeah, so we got all <laughs> as much time as you want. So, well, it was interesting. So in 1943, uh, during when World War II is kicking off, they realized during World War One, they didn't have enough chaplains. So they really started building up the chaplain corps in the military. And by 43, there's only three denominations that are recognized by the military. They recognize Protestants, which is Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists, all lumped into one. And even today, that makes up 80% of your core. Um, Catholics, um, and then at that time, uh, it was rabbis or, or Jewish chaplains. You know, today we have others, Muslim chaplains, et cetera. But at that time, only the three that was recognized were those three. So when these chaplains joined the military, and the chaplain corps is a volunteer corps. So you're owned by your denomination. So if the Military Chaplain Association, let's say Catholic Military Chaplain Association wants to send a priest to the Army, Navy, Air Force, or Marines, they have to allow that to happen. And they can pull their chaplain anytime they want. They would they say pull their endorsement. So it's a voluntary um, activity. So we'll just briefly talk about the four that volunteered. So George L. Fox is actually from Pennsylvania, and he joins during World War One, um, he runs away from home at 17. He joins the Marines. He's part of um, a medical unit and he's highly decorated. He wins the Silver Star, you know, Purple Heart. He comes back and he's going to actually be a very successful accountant and then decides to become a Methodist minister. So he moves up to the Vermont, New Hampshire area, kind of a um, uh, circuit pastor. He does several churches. And that's where he's serving. So when the war breaks out, he's 42. He's an old guy. And he tells his wife that I need to go back and serve because I understand what war looks like. And then you had Alexander Good, who came from a family of rabbis. He, you know, he grows up in um, D.C. So it's kind of interesting because this is the 100th anniversary of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Mm -hmm. uh, he's there on day one when they initially... Um, have the Tomb of the Unknown dedication. And he's standing there with his dad. He's a young teenager. He's going to East High School um, in um, East Capitol High School there in D.C. And he's so moved by the by the ceremony. He tells his dad he's going to walk home and think about what he wants to do. This is a young high school kid. He's got to walk home like 15 miles. He walks <laughs> home, gets home. He tells his dad that I'm going to follow in your footsteps and, and be a rabbi. He ends up serving in York, Pennsylvania, and while he's serving that congregation in New York, he um, he goes to John Hopkins University in Baltimore and gets his Ph.D. and, and to become a doctor. Wow. And he did that just so he can understand more about the human, not just the spirit, but the human body. He was never going to practice being a doctor, but so he's a super intelligent guy. And then um, then you had Clark V. Poling, and he's the reason the foundation ends up back in Philadelphia. So Clark Poling is just going to enlist. His dad's a um, uh, Baptist minister, and he came from a family of several generations of ministers. And his dad served in World War One. And when his son comes to him and says, "You know, I'm going to join and you know and go fight. I don't want to hide behind being a pastor," you know. And his dad then tells him, "You know, 
you know, the, the highest mortality rate, you know, during the war per MOS is going to be a chaplain because, you know, you're going off the war with no weapon. You do understand that, son. So you're not hiding behind anybody. So then his son decides that he will follow his dad's footsteps. So Clark Poling, he goes as a Dutch reform um, a Protestant chaplain. And then the, the fourth one was the um, priest. Um, and that was John Washington. He was at a parish in Kearney, New Jersey. And he's kind of the spirit, the young spirit at one of the group. You know, he coached young boys, sports and everything. And, and he could sing. Guy could do pretty much everything. And he decides that it's his calling also to go. So these four all meet up at Harvard University. That's where the chaplain school was at the time. I mean, it has like 17 different homes until it finally ended up in, in um, South Carolina, Fort Jackson. But at that time, it was at Harvard. And you talk about not a whole lot of training here. You talk like a six-month school. Here's what, how you wear a uniform. Keep your head down and good luck. You know, <laughs> right. they them out the door, you know, so, you know, but these guys actually met at the school and they got along. So the chief of Chapman's office purposely put together a team of two Protestants, which was Fox and um, Poling. And then the, the rabbi, which was good. And then the priest, which was um, Father Washington. And they're going to send them on a secret mission to Greenland. So in Greenland, it was about 3,000 soldiers already in Greenland. We're about 18 months before we before D-Day. And we're building air bases there and weather stations to monitor um, Europe. So once these guys are done doing that, they're going to end up heading towards the front and, and fight. So... They're going to um, send them there, and they put these four chapmans on a ship called the USAT Dorchester. Um, this ship used to be a cruise liner that went from Baltimore down to Florida, about 230 bursts. It was, you know, kind of high speed at the time. Well, the Army buys it. It's getting a little old. The Army buys it, strips it down. We're going to put 902 people on this. There's now no longer a luxury vehicle. You know? <laughs> There's no luxury there. <laughs> no luxury anymore. The thing only goes like 10 knots, you know, and it's painful. <laughs> It looks like a, you know, a floating can, you know, nobody was impressed when they saw it, you know, and so you're going to put about 600 raw recruits from the army on there. You're going to have um, Coast Guard going to be on there. You're going to have Navy um, personnel that mainly are going to man the guns. Um, you're going to have uh, merchant Marines are going to run the ship. There's about 150 uh, Department of Defense contractors, mainly carpenters, electricians and stuff to help build the airfield. And there was 16 Dutch citizens um, because Greenland at that time is, was, you know, underneath the, the Dutch government. So they're going to head out from um, New York. So they leave Staten Island on um, January. Um, they get there January 22nd. They're supposed to leave that evening. They end up leaving the next morning, the 23rd. And a huge convoy. You know, at this time, they know that the Germans are watching the coast. They're actually sinking ships right outside the Statue of Liberty. Um, but this... 50 ship convoy is going to head towards uh, open waters and then they're going to split up. And in, in this case, the Dorchester is going to head to Newfoundland with two other ships, uh, the Biscay and the Lutz. And they're only going to be escorted by three Coast Guard cutters. So you're going to have the Tampa going to be up front. The Escanaba um, will will be following them on, on the side and the Comanche. And unfortunately... Yeah, it's a value, car, you know, cargo because there's troops on it, but you're not getting cruisers or destroyers. So these ships aren't all manned with with the the most technology. In fact, the Tampa had no um, sonar, so they know there's 
they know they're, you know, they're going to be, you know, subjected, hope, you know, hopefully not, but subjected probably to a submarine attack. But they, they leave the 23rd. They arrive in St. John's, um, Newfoundland on the 27th. This is the last time the soldiers get on land. They're going to tell them to exit the ship and they're going to march to a local military base um, that's that's was built there in Newfoundland. And they're going to spend the night and then march back. And then on the 29th, they're going to head out to open seas and they're heading to Greenland. This is a sixth trip the USAT Dorchester has made. Um, it's, it's going to be their final trip. Um, they run into a lot of bad weather. In fact, it gets so bad, it's kind of like a misty fog that it freezes on the ship and it starts building up ice. It gets so bad, they think the ship's going to sink because the layers of ice and they're out there chipping that off. And they Jeez. get, yeah, just hideous. I mean, I'd never be in the Navy. And, and you can imagine what these soldiers are going through. So this is what part of the story was really this time period of the chaplains leaving um, Staten Island and before they get attacked is really where they made their bread and butter because what people would recount was how well they got along. And and you had people that grew up in different parts of the country that never met a Jewish rabbi before. Uh, when I grew up, even in the 70s, I was Lutheran. And according to my pastor, all my Catholic friends were going to hell. You know, so it's kind of <laughs> like, you know, this is in the 70s. So you can imagine 43, you know, it's kind of like, Okay, you know, so they didn't see these, you know, but they all got along. And, you know, the rabbi would be supported by the priest when he'd hold the service. And, and then they did some fun things like they're all very talented singers. They'd host some talent shows and they realized as they got closer to the destination. The more questions soldiers would ask them, because like my dad would say in World War II, there's no atheists in a foxhole. People yeah. start wondering and then they get nervous. You know, the closer you get, we made it this far. Are we going to make it? Um, but then, unfortunately, like a lot of GIs, you're 10 days into this journey, nothing happens. So even though the captain reports that there are subs in the area and you should um, wear all your clothes and have your life jacket on when you sleep tonight, if we get the daylight, we'll be supported by aircraft. We'll be fine. Um, of course, a lot of the GIs went to sleep in just their shorts and because they're GIs and it's hot down there and that's what we're going to do. And unfortunately, they, um, a submarine spots them. Uh, about 90 miles short of their destination. And they took out the large ship, which is the USAD Tor Dorchester. And they fire five torpedoes, one of which hits them um, squarely you know, center. And they think the ship sunk in, I always say 30 minutes or less, but I looked at the after action reports. They think it could have been even as fast as, you know, less than 20 minutes. And unfortunately, when it gets hit, they have, and they have more, so they have 902 people on board. They have enough lifeboats to carry 1,200. They have enough life jackets for 1,200. And yet when it's hit, a lot of people die instantly. Um, all the lifeboats on the one side got hit, were useless. The other side, some were frozen. So out of the 14 lifeboats, only two actually get deployed properly. Um, the chaplains happened. The officers all were above the waterline. That's where they're their um, building was so they of course were able to get up to the top but what they did is they moved to the top of the ship and they helped empty all the um, the life jacket um, storage um, units and then near the end they took off their life jackets and gave it to the last four um, soldiers on the ship they think it was probably the navy gun crew that they gave it to and they gave them the life jackets then they hung on to the side and and linked arms and they 
they um, sang and they prayed as the ship went down. And how we know that is because um, 672 people perished out of the 902. It's the largest loss of life during World War II for a troop carrier. But out of the 230 that survived, they interview them all. So the chief of chaplain's office, they want to put them up for the Medal of Honor. So they interview them and they ask them six questions, two of which were, where were you when the ship got sunk? And, you know, and how did you exit the ship? And did you, did you see these acts by the chaplain? And there was enough people that could verify that the chaplains, yes, were together. Some actually spoke about them, um, watching them do the acts that they're given credit for. And, um, but a lot of them was just the fact that they, the singing and praying gave them hope to hang on. So many of them talk about, you should only survive in that water for less than 30 minutes. And mm -hmm. some of the that water for six for six hours Jeez. and they, they comment that it was part of what the chaplains did and what they saw that they weren't going to give up you know and and they were able to hang on and 230 got them survived and one part of that story so there's a book just came out it's called the immortals is written by um steve collis he's a professor down in um university of texas and he wrote the book through the eyes of a gentleman called charles w david jr and he was actually on the Comanche. And in 1943, if you were a black Coast Guard member, the only position you could hold was a cook or a steward's mate. You know, and yet this very athletic um, Coast Guard member goes to the captain and says, I will help rescue um, survivors. And he, at this time, because they're being afraid that they were going to get torpedoed, they would do passes. They wouldn't stop the ship. And he'd climb down the rope. He'd snatch people out of the out of the boats, out of the water, and drag them up. And they give him account to saving about 25, at least 25 individuals. Um, he later gets pneumonia and passes away. Um, but we often talk about the chaplains gave people hope. But the book's written um, about Charles W. David and the story. But it talks about this Charles W. David acted on that hope. You know, he, you know, they wanted a miracle. He was one guy that stepped up and and help survive or save people. And it's kind of neat. I talked to his family and, and a gentleman that was saved. And he says, you know, I wouldn't, he's got all these grandkids. He goes, I wouldn't have been here except for that gentleman that did what he did. And he, he didn't have to do that. So, so the foundation, why it ends up back in Philly is you go back to um, Clark Poling, his dad's a, a semi-famous minister here in Philadelphia. Um, on the campus of Temple University, there's a Baptist temple. It's still there today. If you go down Broad Street, at that point, 1943, it's the largest church in the United States. And they have 15,000 people go through there on a weekend, you know, and it, it's it's huge. And a group of, it's surprising, it was a Jewish gentleman who worked for Kaiser Aluminum on New Jersey side. He hears the story about the four chaplains and their sacrifice. He puts together a committee of some of his fraternity friends they actually go to this Baptist church and they go to Daniel Poling, the pastor, and they said, you know what? We need to create an interfaith chapel in your Baptist church that's going to, we're going to build an altar down there and it's going to rotate between a Protestant, a Catholic, a Jewish service, and you guys are going to like it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and he was able to convince them and, and they raised at that time a large amount of money, over $400,000. So in 1951, they opened this chapel in the basement of this church. And, you know, basements back then were very, they, it wasn't like a basement. I mean, they had pillars and I mean, it looked like, you know, those older churches do. And, 
And uh, it's about the size of our chapel here in, in um, the Navy Yard, except there's no, the ceiling's lower and there's no windows. But in 1951, they opened that chapel and President Truman comes up by train from um, Washington, D.C. He gives the opening speech. And we have in this chapel, we have a 20 by 12 foot mural of the final scenes of the four chaplains that was hand painted. He unveils that mural and he talks about um, this interfaith cooperation and how the, the selfless service of the chaplains. And that's what the foundation was based on was they wanted to do two things. They wanted to honor people in the community and across the nation uh, for acts of selfless service and interfaith cooperation. But they also wanted to model that. So if you went to a service at the chapel of four chaplains, they would invite congregations, but they weren't trying to start a congregation. They would invite a Baptist congregation to come and they would rotate that chapel or that altar between the Jewish, the Protestant, and Catholic. And if it happens to be a predominantly, if this is going to be a Protestant service, it would end on the Protestant side and they would host a service. And they always had a priest, a rabbi, and a Protestant chapel in attendance. And the idea was to teach others that it was okay to, you know, you know, interact with each other, even though your faith might be might be different. So it, it stayed at Temple from 51 till the late 80s. At that time, Temple University wanted to, um, uh, they were formed by a Baptist, founded by a Baptist um, minister. They wanted to, the not be known just for that. So in the Baptist church, you know, needed to move because they couldn't afford to renovate the building. So it became a fine arts building. But if you go there, it'll still say Chapel of Four Chaplains on the side. It'll still say the Baptist temple. You can go down in the basement. You can still see where the room was. They still call it the Four Chaplains. And then we, we ended up moving. And it just so happens we ended up in the Navy Yard in an old 1942 chapel. So the foundation is here. Um, and it's, it's actually a great location. I mean, you walk in, you feel like, you know, any old installation. You, I, I always tell them we can, we keep the building up, we can modernize a little bit, but it has to have that kind of, when I walk in as a soldier, it has to kind of smell and feel like an old military chapel. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it has that feel about it, like, okay. And I get people all the time commenting that, you know, I got married here when I was, you know, in Philadelphia, or my parents did, or, you know, I was, I went to an old chapel like this, and Right now, I'm doing some work with Arlington National Cemetery, and and I was in the old post chapel, and I was standing outside um, watching us. They're getting ready for a service. And I'm looking at the building. I'm like, that's our chapel. So it's the same design, you know, the the old post chapel on on um, Fort Myer in Arlington is the same design as the chapel here at the Navy Yard. So, well, so that's nutshell that you know the the four the big takeaway from that was you know this interfaith cooperation. And the fact that these guys volunteered to do what they did. And then I always tell people, we talk a lot about living your call in the in the chaplain corps, your call to the ministry. And I always tell people, if you weren't called in the ministry, you think in that 20 minutes they had left on on this planet that they were they were, you know, deciding, hey, what am I supposed to do? No, these guys knew exactly why they were there and exactly what they were gonna do. And and Chaplain Daniel Poling summed it up the best once when they asked him. Um, do you think it was worth your son losing his life? And he says, you know, I had no doubt that these four individuals would all have been successful um, religious leaders in their communities. And the, the, their communities would have loved them, but what they did, their story, not only reaches people nationally, but worldwide. So he says their sacrifice was much bigger than, um, 
than they even realized. So yeah, absolutely, and, and that is. I mean, it it really is. It's just um, it speaks to. I mean, of, of so many things that we hold um, as you know core values and as our ethos uh, as service persons, but at the same time, there's a there's a a faith aspect there as well. Do you think that some of their sacrifice um, is the I guess some of the nuances of their sacrifice maybe are lost is as we look at um, you know, I guess sort of the surface level perception is that their love for country um, and their love for camaraderie is what brought them to this. But is there a faith aspect there as well? Yeah, and I think um, um, for them, it definitely came for, for, for what they did, what they did definitely came from their background as ministries. They, they specifically joined the military the be chaplains and to serve the spiritual well-being. So when I was in the Chapman Corps for 30 years, um, one of the things I noticed, for instance, when I come off, when I go to Iowa and I spent 10 years in the Iowa Guard, if we had 20 chaplains in the Iowa Guard, 19 of them had a church and they served as the church, they went to the Guard. So then I move forward the next 10 years of my career and I go to Oregon. Um, I would say about 50%. And then as the war broke out, and they extended over 20 years, we found that chaplains weren't serving in churches anymore because mm. pace of the of their service um, and also because other things changed. I could now get online and and do my education. So academically, I could qualify to be a chaplain in the military. It used to be you would have to serve in a church X number of years and then the army would come calling or Navy or the Air Force. Um, some of that because of the war and they, a need for chaplains. They look more at the academic and then they realize, and this is the question I had when I traveled the country, are you called for this field? Or, or The other thing I pointed to him, I said, you know, I train officers or are you a chaplain? And I call it officer light. Do you like the trappings of being an officer without the responsibility? Because you don't have to command anything and, and everybody likes you. You know, you're not getting in trouble. You're not yelling at people. I said, you got to answer that question for yourselves. And um, I did have some chaplains that resigned their commission, and they should have, uh, or they could go in another branch of the military. But you have to be called to that field because a service member will figure it out in a hurry if you don't have a lot of depth to your ministry because they don't want you to be like them. They want somebody that has some depth. They want somebody to give them some answers, somebody to give them some faith. And if you aren't practicing your your um uh, your beliefs on a regular basis and getting stronger and stronger, um, you will fail as a chaplain. I mean, it'll stand out and, and an enlisted person will figure that out. And the neat thing about the Army Chaplain Corps, and I think a lot of people don't understand this, is nobody asks the chaplain to be anything different than what the denomination wants them to be. So if a Catholic chaplain comes in and they and their denomination says they have to look at certain social issues in you know in this light, Nobody asked them to change that. You know, if I'm a conservative Baptist versus a maybe more liberal Lutheran, you know, nobody asked them to change. They they tell them when they're preaching, they can preach by the tenets of their of their faith. Where um, where chaplains have to learn in the military is that other aspect. When the commander asks you to come to a service, and it's a mixed audience, and we're doing a just a memorial, then at that point you have to be more just that chaplain and not the local 
Methodist minister because you don't know who's in the front row. You know, if your commander is Jewish, Catholic, whatever, so mm-hmm. that you have to take on a little bit more of a, um, you know, holistic approach to your ministry. So I always tell people, since 80% are Baptists, I always tell them, okay, this is what to get you in trouble in your career will be this. Have the commander hold a service, a memorial service, or just a luncheon, and then you preach, then you pray him to Jesus. All right, you're going to do that. I'm telling you what, you're going to get yelled at after a while. You know, and it's not because you can't, you know, believe in Jesus and that, but it's just there's certain times in the military that in a mixed audience, if they're commanded to be there, you you have to be smart enough to know that this is not your church service. You know, yeah. I mean, I'll come to your Sunday service, go at it. You know, you can do what you want. That's your service. You know, so that's a hard thing sometimes for chaplains, you know, to understand is that we're not taking away your religious freedoms. You just have to know that you're also wearing a uniform and it's different than the civilian world, you know, so. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, um, yeah, th- there's a lot of those sort of nuances, I think, that are lost on people who maybe only engage with their chaplain for their religious service of their denomination right. uh, and and or are going to seek some sort of spiritual advice. Like, hey, I'm going to get married, chaplain. You know, I, I, my, my, my command is forcing me to come see right. you before I get married. Um, so I guess going into the pluralism, I think that might be something that we take for granted, as you mentioned, um, back, uh, you know, during the time of the four chaplains, there were only three recognized denominations. Now we have, um, you know, a bunch that, uh, you know, Muslims and Buddhists, um, Hindu. So how was it, though? Because the times maybe weren't as progressive back then. Right. Uh, and so what was it like, do you think, for these four chaplains who had come up through the chaplain corps together to be on this boat where, like you said, some of the soldiers had never seen a, a rabbi. I've never seen a Jewish person, never a, a rabbi. And now here he is singing alongside a Catholic priest and two Protestant ministers. So what was it like? Like, doesn't there, a, isn't there a certain amount of bravery that these four gentlemen had to exhibit even before the attack from the submarine? Yeah, Rabbi Good would talk when he was at the chaplain school. He, he tells a story about a Texas Baptist minister coming up and asking him to get his picture taken with him. He goes, I've never met a Jew before, you know, and he but, he, you know, he said it matter of factly, like he wasn't being negative or anything. He just honestly didn't. He grew up in a small town in Texas. And here's this guy from who was born in New York City and and grew up in D.C. And they realized right away that this mixture of soldiers throughout the nation, they're going to be. There are going to be a lot of things that is the first time they're ever going to see it. So they they knew they needed to model that, I think. And that's what stood out in their mind, that they needed to show that we're, we have more things in common than we have, you know, difference. Um, today, I think the highest, I think back then, most people would identify in some way with the religion. Even if they didn't go to church, um, it was kind of like if your parents were Protestant, you're probably Protestant or Catholic or you know, it just seemed you kind of fell in line a little bit more. Today, the the number one um, designation in the military, we call them nuns, no religious preference. And right. the young people, we don't mistake the fact that we say, many of them say they're spiritual, but they not may not be religious. And a lot of them will combine the aspects of several different religions and come up with their own little thing, which is, you know, that's what chaplains had to learn, you know. And yeah this COVID thing proved out 
one of the things that we saw on the ground was they don't necessarily have to go to church and sit in a pew like our parents used to. I mean, they don't mind tuning in, even on a Zoom thing and listen to a pastor, but they didn't need all the other stuff. They didn't need to sit and sing and the social after and all this. So we're finding that we have to look at it today, not necessarily that they don't have an interest in spiritual things, but they might not have that same lockstep interest or maybe lack of curiosity that I had. I mean, when I grew up as a Lutheran, I mean, I was, he went to all their education stuff and here's your right and left limits. If you're going to be a good Lutheran, he didn't really question it as a kid. You know, my first question is when I went to college and I realized, Hey, I'm not in Kansas anymore. There's people here from all over the country, you know, and, and they'll ask me, why do you believe this? And I'm like, Oh, nobody ever asked me that before, you know? And, and then you join the military and I realized right away that I have nothing on my uniform that says, I am a chaplain assistant. A chaplain walks in the room. He'll have his, typically it'll be a cross, but they might have a tablet if they're Jewish. Today, you know, they'd have the, you know, maybe the crescent if they're Muslim, but they would be identified as this religious leader. I walk in a room, I look like any other soldier. There's nothing on me tells you that I'm a chaplain assistant. So I used to always tell chaplain assistants, if you're recognized by your peers as a chaplain assistant because your actions, they're, they, you know, are, are pointing you out that you act a little bit different. You have to have a, you know, high moral, ethical, um, you know, boundaries, and you know, you have to be able to, even if you're not overly spiritual, you know, you you need to be able to support that spiritual leader. And um, and I tell them, so it's a it's a, a calling in a in a sense, you know, as far as that goes. But yeah, today it would be a little harder. I don't know, harder. I was gonna say it's just different. You know, I don't think, I think young people ask more questions, you know, and they want to, but I, that's why I tell chaplains it's important that um, you give them answers from your standpoint. They'll sort through the nuances of it, but you can't be like them. You have to be, you know, a spiritual presence in their life. And then they will decide what they want to do with that. You know? Yeah. It's like um, in, you know, in the Bible when uh, Jesus says that I will knock, but you got to invite me in. Right. Yeah. That's pretty much it. You know, and I said, so you just keep preaching, keep doing what you're supposed to do. And that's all you can do, you know, and, and then move on. So, so uh, what do you think? Um, do you, uh, as the um, executive director of the foundation, do you run into any issues uh, with people of an apprehension of the the religious plur, uh, pluralism that you guys sort of embody? Um, I think a lot depends sometimes. I, what I try, what, here's where I look at it from, since I'm not a chaplain. So I look at it through the eyes of the person that's coming to the chaplaincy. So I understand the difference of the different chaplains in the military. So I'm always wary about um, who's coming to our events and then how they will perceive it. And I, I have to say, sometimes I go in, we're a predominantly Christian country still, and we're predominantly, I mean, there's you know, statistics state that most Christians are probably Protestant in this country. So if I have an audience, I guess I go into, if, it's, if it just happens at our chapel, that most people are probably coming from that perspective. But I always talk to my chaplains when they come here that um, they have to, they have to, if they're going to preach in my building, they have to understand that they have to be open to everybody else. So we actually have a very successful Baptist minister um, from Philadelphia that preaches here. 
And we sat down before I allowed him. And he, he until COVID, he did Sunday services. I said, Baptist the heck out of it. I mean, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You know, you're a professional. But you have to understand that people walk into my church. You have to be able to allow anybody to come to your service. You, you can't discriminate against people. And you have to be open, you know, to other, you know, faith groups. And he says, no problem. I said, I'm not asking you to change in one bit. And I, I think if people come and understand that you're a Baptist minister, they got to understand that you're using my building, you know, the, to be a Baptist minister, you know, and I open it up to other faith groups. But so it, it is a balancing act a little bit. Um, but I know when I do travel around and talk, I really always make it a point to um, talk about inclusiveness a little bit and just be aware that not everybody in your audience maybe comes from the same perspective as you, you know, and I, I think that's just a lesson that we can't reinforce enough, you know. Yeah, I think that that's almost a life hack, but uh, I, I definitely can see how it, <laughs> something um, where, you know, your foundation embodies these four um, interfaith brothers. Um, yeah, so it, it's really, I think it's really wonderful what you guys are doing in, in the celebration of, of uh, these four chaplains' sacrifice. Well, sir, uh, I know I know that um, I, I'm re I really appreciate your generosity with your time. I do have one question for you, though. Uh, we try to close, especially with our uh, our service members. What was your favorite day in the Army? All right. I'll tell you that. So I just want to let you know. So one reason we're doing this broadcast now is so that sinking the door chest was February 3rd, 1943. So yep. Congress actually passed the four chaplains day. It's not as big as like Martin. You don't get a day off, you know, but, you know, it is it is commemorative. Um, always that February 3rd. And actually, those four chaplains never received the Medal of Honor. But in 1961, when Eisenhower was president at Fort Myer above Arlington, they created a medal called the Medal of Heroism, the same level as the Medal of Honor. And they only gave it out one time in the history of the military. And they gave it to the families of those four chaplains for their act. So my favorite, and it's actually a favorite two weeks. So all the things I did in the military is I got to be a chaplain assistant. I got to run for the military. Uh, I get into the guard. They allow me to teach. They allow me to keep being a chaplain assistant. And then they allow me to coach. So I coach um, a biathlon team. And I knew nothing about biathlon. In fact, you know, I, you know, I really knew nothing. I knew they skied and I knew they stopped. I saw an Olympic, <laughs> but I convinced the state that I could coach this team, you know. And it just so happens. In, um, and the reason I did it is because coaching – and, and traveling is a great way to educate young people. So I purposely would go out and recruit young um, athletic individuals that had, most of the time had no idea how to ski, but they know how to shoot because the Army taught them how to shoot. And, and I would teach them how to combine those two. But they, they learned a lot of lessons by being able to take care of their gear, learning a new sport, traveling to different events and you know, in, in Yellowstone. And uh, we would go out to... Um, um, Vermont, we go to Minnesota, all around the country. But for two weeks, I was the only one that had college students on my team. And there's actually a thing called the, uni the World University Games. And it's the Olympics for college students. So one wow. of the principles you have to be in college. And they hold this Olympic competition every four years. So these are truly amateurs. And they were holding one in, um, in Ankara, Turkey. And I when they called the state, they said, Hey, we need some biathletes. We would like to take yours. And I said, well, 
you can have them, but I'm coming as the coach. I said, no way you're taking my athletes and leaving me home. You know, so for two weeks, I got to be, you know, an Olympic coach, you know, and it was like the greatest experience to watch these young people, you know, a young guy from uh, North Dakota who's skiing against, well, not everybody necessarily followed the rules like the United States. Our guys were going to college full time. The Russian team were, they went to sports university. <laughs> I mean, these were the Olympians. So we got our heads handed to us. But, you know, the thing was that they got to, you know, get, you know, get on skis and compete against these people from all over the world. And they, it was a great life changing, you know, experience for them. Um, they had like Olympic parade, just like you would, you know, at the Olympics and, all the trappings of, of uh, you know, Olympic Village. And so for me, it was right near the end of my career. It was right before I went to the Guard Bureau. And it made it all, that journey all kind of worth it. It was able, I was able to combine what I learned in the military, what I knew as a civilian, as a coach. And then, and it focused in what I always did through my military career. Look for young, mainly single soldiers, both male and female, that, we're trying to figure out what they wanted to do. And by inviting them to try something new, like this biathlon, for a lot of them, it kept them in college. Um, and it also gave them some more uh, reasons to stay in the guard and finish their career. So I, I, I was very proud of that. And, and I, of course, I had a great time in, uh, in, in Turkey. So it was a lot of fun. So <laughs> That's awesome. That's a great yeah. story. Well, yeah. sir, again, thank you so much for your time. Um, as you mentioned, February 3rd is Fort Chaplain's Day. Um, this will be airing, I believe, the Tuesday before that. So it'll be coming the end of January. But uh, you're kicking off our series. We're going to have um, three more chaplains uh, on. So we're going to cover the month of February as we focus on chaplains, the chaplain corps. But this was an absolutely wonderful uh, introduction to our series and introduction to the Fort Chaplain, sir. So Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. And um, this has been really great and extremely informative. So best of luck to you and everything. Hey, appreciate the time. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Awesome, sir. Take care. Take care. Bye now. Bye. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am Nick Wilson. That is Major Vic Rubel, U.S. Marine Corps retired. We have also heard the voices of or contributions from William Truding or Nancy Lichman, editors of Gazette and Leatherneck magazines, respectively. Opinions expressed in Scuttlebutt are just that, opinions, and do not represent any official stance of the MCA.